You can't keep using tools of oppression and expect to raise free people. Love will always ever encourage you to be exactly who it is that you know you are. <laughs> If that's not what love is doing, then the shit's not love, <laughs> basically. Open quote. Without an ethic of love shaping in the direction of our political vision and our radical aspirations, we are often seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to systems of domination, imperialism, sexism, racism, classism. It has always puzzled me that women and men who spend a lifetime working to resist and oppose one form of domination can be systematically supporting another. Close quote. Bell Hooks. Love as the Practice of Freedom. Love, trust, identity. That's the trifecta flow of the conversation that Kelly Henderson will guide us on for the next 20-ish minutes. Kelly is a college professor and an unschooling mama of five children. She is brilliant and funny and hella focused on Black love. And I'm talking beyond romantic love. I'm talking about love that liberates individuals and communities. Love that reshapes classrooms and class structures. Love that creates worlds and relationships rooted in levels of trust and love that we cannot even begin to imagine. Well, let's begin imagining today. Kelly's going to get us started. Here are some of the best bits from a lovely, liberation-minded conversation between she and I, and then I'll circle back and tell you a little bit more about Kelly. I am here with Kelly Henderson, who I'm so grateful for in my life, let alone this podcast. I asked Kelly on because I want to take advantage of all of this collective love energy, this particular time of year or month, people care about love stuff. And I like to tap into that in ways that make sense for us. So Kelly, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So y'all have heard <laughs> Kelly before. I'm trying to remember, we didn't play a segment from ours first, or maybe we did, but we've talked about ours first, which is the piece that Kelly wrote for Tipping Points. And if you have not read that, what is going on in your life, I will put it in the show notes page, which will be raisingpeople.com forward slash 105. That piece is one that I had the privilege of reading on Kelly's blog and basically begged her to share it with Tipping Points. <laughs> and of course, I also shared it on Instagram. And of course, it got people all in their feelings, all on their feet, like I knew it would, like it did for me. So that is really where I want to start when we talk about love, because I think that so much love emanated from that piece. And I want to talk about it. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about that piece and like where that came from for you? Yeah. 
I'm an education professor. And so a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the paid work that I do is talking to people that want to be teachers about education, schooling, and learning. And a lot of my work is, first of all, making clear that they understand that there are distinctions between those three concepts. And then moving into reminding them that schooling is an institution and schooling as an institution in a white supremacist society does certain things. And the main thing it does is school people or indoctrinate people toward whatever role they're supposed to be playing in this supremacist society. And kind of spending my days doing that is juxtaposed against having five Black children that I love, obviously, and do not want exposed into that doctrine or to be indoctrinated in that way. In my years of trying to kind of block that sort of indoctrinization from hitting my children, really a lot of the response that I've gotten or a lot of the people who seemed like-minded were either like white folks saying, I do this too, and this is the new thing we're doing. Look at this thing we created. Mm -hmm. Or people who were not white who were saying, wait, how are you? Why are you? What is this? What are you doing with your kids? That sort of thing. And so because I spend so much time thinking about education in my home life and then in my life outside of the home, what came up for me over time was that the first step in pushing back against an oppressive system, I think, is just realizing that it foundationally is a lie. So that this inculcation into white society, into white supremacist society, and all this kind of stuff is at base being trained to believe lies, being trained to believe that the things that you know in your gut are true are actually not true. And you need to believe what other people are telling you about yourself. And one of those lies is that if you are a minoritized person, particularly a non-white person in this society, that anything that you came up with, that anything that you did is due to white people, basically. And that we did not create anything on our own, that we didn't come up with anything on our own, that sort of thing. And so it just kind of started bubbling up between my work life and my home life to really feel the need to say, No, 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 no. Even if those of us who are in marginalized groups can't exactly pinpoint, right, because of white erasure, because of colonialist erasure of our stories and our truths and our history and our knowledges, even though we can't pinpoint where our knowledges came from, even though we can't pinpoint those sorts of things, those of us that are minoritized people, particularly indigenous and black people in the U.S. context, need to know that the things that flow out of us, that come out of our guts, that come out of the deepest part of us are ours. The way that we feel in our bones, that we want to make sure that this world is safe as possible for our children and that our children can flourish. The way that we do these things is actually indicative of the self-love and the self-sustaining work that Black and Indigenous peoples particularly in U.S. society have been doing since this shit started, right? (laughs) It is not a white thing. That is, I think, what compelled me to write it because even though in the history of academia, in the colonialist history of academia, right, 
The yeah. practice is that you have to be able to trace who said what in order to validate your argument. But if you are a black person, if you're an indigenous person, that shit got a race. You can't trace. And so even though I understood that we are in a dominant environment that requires you to trace, even though it erased the possibility of tracing for many of us, that we must say, even if I can't name names, even though if I can't name page numbers, even though I can't name regions where this thinking came from or great philosophers of my people where this thinking came from this shit was ours it was ours even if you took away our ability to kind of name the genealogy of it it's ours and so that I think is where that piece came from is just my just feeling compelled to say like if I got a I'm going to piss on this hydrant basically this is ours I don't know I don't know what to tell you (laughs) that's right And that's exactly how it resonated for people. Like that's what (laughs) the sort of responses that we got from that piece was very much that. Like it's that you were able to articulate in that piece what a lot of us were feeling in our guts. And it shows up so much as you say here, it says marginalized groups have been learning the world for a long time and without school. Before and throughout this colonialist era, it is the way we learn to manage our food systems and organize communities. It is the way we learn to predict weather and navigate seas. It is the way we learn transportation routes and our stories. It is the way we learned ourselves and others. It is the way we learned who the oppressors really were, despite what they told us about themselves in their schools. That's an excerpt from ours first, and that's very much the sort of not only feelings, but the experiences that we've had, the sort of things that our grandparents want to say, but also have to like sort of juxtapose that with the idea of struggling for us to get a better education. It puts all of that into Mm -hmm. a context and says, yeah, no, bottom line, we have been learning and living and thriving. This is something that we know how to do, which is why someone could be a college professor and also unschool their five children, right? Because people hear that (laughs) and feel like, well, what? I don't understand that. But I love the way that, and there's that word again, love. There's so much love in both of the things that you do because of the love for your children. That's one of the main reasons why you don't force them to go to school. And also because of the love of our people and people is a part of why you teach people who are going to be teaching other people, like trying to minimize the harm that can be done in that space. Yeah, exactly. And I think that also what was helpful, I think about writing that piece because you and I, our conversations on my couch or your couch or whatever (laughs) existed help kind of bring that piece to light because what became evident over time is that even though people may think it is ironic, just like you said, that I'm a professor of education and I unschool my kids. What I do know is that, yeah, I have a PhD. And so that means that I've been schooled for a long ass time. (laughs) And I've been schooled for a long, and being schooled in that way, like I was clear about the ideas that I have now, I had 15 years ago, right? So it wasn't, or I had 17 years ago when my oldest daughter was little, but I understood that the way that access in the society works, 
the way that resource access in this society works, no one is going to listen to me for real, for real. That was my assumption back then. Nobody's going to listen to me for real, for real until I have these letters behind my name. Mm -hmm. So let me use this tool of academia in order to be able to kind of better share these ideas. But being in academia longer trains you on what academia is, which is like, oh, okay, okay. So this is kind of like the colonialist Death Star, if you will. Like all of the knowledge of the colony, the knowledge of colonial systems resonate or emanate out of this center. So I can be in it to tell other people in it, like, listen, this is what this is about. When you go out there and deal with our children, don't fuck them up, please. Thank you. Let me tell you why, right? Because this entity, this institution is not going to disappear anytime soon. But being in the academy also taught me a lot of its tricks, right? And one of the tricks is that you can erase people's access to their own stories and then tell them that they don't have a story. So that for me, having that kind of exposure, having that connection to the academy actually has started to make me feel and so much credit goes to you for like allowing me to talk through this for the hours and hours. (laughs) Made it clear to me that I can then reach out to my people, my own people, and be like, there's nothing to see over there, actually. (laughs) Everything that you need, you've got. You've got it. You've got it. No matter what they're telling you, you've got it. Because what they're telling you is lies. So there is that love there because it is love for my children that I did not birth. And I'm particularly in this case talking about Black children that I did not birth. And it was like, what can I do here? What can I do in this institution to help you all, right? Even though you've never met me, you'll never know me. What can I do? And then for my children that I did birth, other children that are around me for other reasons, what can I do? What can I put out there to let you know, to let your parents know, to let your relatives and your communities know that y'all already have it in you and that you don't have to accept the lies that are floating around you. So yeah, it is that love. In, yes. in both cases, which is also the reason why, and we talked about this, like that piece went out and I haven't read any of the comments. Like, I don't know what anybody is saying about it <laughs> because I don't care. Like I put it out there for the black people that I love to get it. Like that's yes. it. And so whoever needs it can get it. Whoever doesn't like it, I also don't care. <laughs> but it's important for me that my people that I love are able to access it, to hook into it in a way, yes. use it however they need. This I took directly from Kelly's blog, ourcontingents.net. In 2016, I earned my PhD in educational policy and was soon hired for my first academic position. As an assistant professor of education, I teach pre-service teachers about the foundational elements of schooling and how to better serve marginalized students. As both a doctoral student and new professor, I published numerous creative and academic articles and chapters and presented at multiple academic conferences. When away from campus, I continued my work toward education justice, 
from co-organizing education conferences and events to participating in an inclusive chaplaincy program. Through that time, my varied life experiences afforded me an empathy that propelled my work in social justice and educational access. I have counted and continue to count my five children as the reason I've done this work and my wife, Christina, as my biggest supporter. At this time, I'm interested in not only exploring education's and schooling's effect on marginalized groups within the United States, but in how we can imagine education beyond our limited conceptualizations of it. As we are able to move our understandings of education from schooling or refusal to school to how and what we need to learn in order to have the best collective human experience while on this planet, I believe that we can have better relationships with ourselves, each other, and the planet. End of that quote. <sighs> right? Right? <laughs> Be sure to check out RaisingFreePeople.com forward slash 105 to get the direct link to Kelly's blog and any other relevant links to this particular episode. That's RaisingFreePeople.com forward slash 105. You will also get a little bit more of Kelly next week as she was the moderator for the Liberation and Education Summit that happened earlier this month in Clarkston, Georgia. So you'll hear the panel discussion around the topic of racial equity in self-directed education. So if you're about that life or interested in that, be sure to come back and sit with me again next week over here on Fear of the Free Child podcast because we're going to be sharing bits from that. Another way to sit with us over here on the podcast is to join me on Patreon. And I need to send a shout out to our newest patron this week, Jackie. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Anyone listening to this, if you're getting something good and or useful out of what you're hearing today, please invest in my work over at patreon.com forward slash Akila. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash A-K-I-L-A-H. And that link is going to be on every single show notes page as well. So you can come on over to Patreon and check out some of the added benefits of investing and being in community with me over there. Let's get back to this conversation around love, trust, and identity. Here, Kelly and I are talking about trust. And I ask her how trust fits into her work as far as mothering and teaching and writing and being. The trust factor essentially comes from the fact that I love my people. I love, I love, I love us. And I know that I told you about when I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Laren, and Laren was talking about an elder that she met. And that woman heard another Black woman speaking negatively about some Black women that she knew. And that elder was just like, you will not speak that way. Mm. You will not speak that way about Black people. Everything about Black people I love. Everything that they do, I love it. And I had to sit with it for a minute because I'm just like, everything <laughs> yeah. every right like so I had to kind of run through my mind of all of the things that black people that I know have done that I didn't love <laughs> yes. and then I was like what would it be what would it look like if black folks in this context 
and in any context, the black folks find themselves, right? But again, I'm speaking in the U.S. context because this is where I was born. So what would happen if black folks in this context said to ourselves, of ourselves, everything that we do, everything that we do, we love. After I had that conversation with my friend, I was like, oh, you know what? That's actually just going to be what I do. Every single thing a black person does, I love it. Whether I agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. However, they are maneuvering in the society to get through it. I love it. I applaud it. I congratulate it. If what they're doing is hurting me, I love it and I love them. Because to me, that's not revolutionary. That is the revolution. If we are in a white supremacist society that is predicated upon lie, I'm not even saying lies like plural, but it's a lie. Like white supremacy itself is a lie. Then blackness, which is the antithesis to whiteness, loving blackness is loving the truth. This is it. We're the revolution and loving us is the revolution. So I can write something and I can put it out there. Somebody can read it. Whatever they do with the shit, I congratulate them. (laughs) Whatever. If they're like, this is awesome. I still need to put my kid in school. Great. Because I love it. I love it and I love you. However we're getting through, I love us. The thing that is life is loving us. What comes up for me when you say that is the sort of grace that we would now be able to afford each other and ourselves. It's nothing but love for us through us around here. So nothing else can come through. It's going to have a really hard time coming through if what we're focused on is love. When our movements, when our actions, when our decisions are rooted in love and not the lie, not the singular lie, as you said, that is white supremacy, what are the possibilities It's a world we cannot even imagine, which I think is a beautiful thing because then we can just go out and create it. And that is what a lot of what happens when we choose to, for me, this idea of a trustful relationship with the children that came through me. And as you said, the ones that are around me and the ones that I'll never know, that Mm -hmm. is a part of how I enact and practice that level of love to say, I trust you. I trust that you are whole. I trust that our relationship dynamics will allow both you and I to know when to push, when to hold, what to say, when to apologize, whatever. Mm -hmm. Because love and trust, they work together. So if we are loving each other in that way, then I also see us trusting each other more. So what happens if we, because we've been taught not to trust anything, anyone but whiteness, what happens now when start to trust each other more and work together in trustful, love-centered ways more. Right. And how will we flourish? Like when we know that we can fully be ourselves in any way that we need to and be held <laughs> by each other, what would that world even look like? Again, this society was predicated on the opposite of that. And so when we are loving ourselves in the fullness of our humanity and in our existence, whatever the age, like just what it would just, if we are loving ourselves, what would that look like (laughs) for real? And I want to also say, because a lot of the things that I write this, ours first, and then other things, I use Black and Indigenous 
like together. I kind of tend to hook them in together in my writing, but I'm doing that not to conflate the two and not to sit like, I don't identify as an indigenous person or anything like that. It is more like discussing or including indigeneity, like as a recognition that at least in the United States, this is a settler colony. It is an invalid nation. There are nations that have been existing here. The reason that I even connect Blackness to indigeneity in these discussions is that in the U.S. context, the Black struggle and the indigenous struggle, I understand them as very much linked in so many ways. And that as a Black person in the United States, I understand myself to be in as much as I can be and be in service to being an accomplice for indigenous rights, indigenous sovereignty. And I am not saying that as an indigenous person, I'm saying that as a Black person, because I understand that Black liberation and indigenous liberation and or sovereignty are not necessarily the same. But again, in this context, they are very, very much connected because our oppressions are from the same source and for the same reason, really. And that's white supremacy. And so we can very much connect in that co-struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification too. And, and these are the sort of things that I really value about the types of conversations we have because Kelly and I end up talking a lot about what I would categorize as like reclamation work, like the ways that we can claim and reclaim ourselves and the idea of even things like identity. I get annoyed sometimes because it feels often like a buzzword but we're going to debuzz the shit right here and actually talk about it. Kelly, when we talk about identity, right, because that's very much tied into love work for me, can we talk Mm. a little bit about how the intersections of identity can either empower or oppress? Because for a lot of us as Black folks, we are just now out loud coming around to the idea that we can identify as whatever we actually feel we are. And that it doesn't have to be a thing that is this one singular thing, or it doesn't have to be the thing that is approved by the general population. Like love and identity feel very much connected for me. And we also talk a lot about that on this podcast because we want to make room, of course, for our children to be able to express and explore what identity means for them without oppressing them along with all the other ways that we're oppressed. As far as I identities are concerned. I understand myself as a Black person, a queer cis woman, a Muslim, someone who's also interested in African traditional religions and kind of understanding how Islam and African traditional religions kind of meld into each other and mix up an able-bodied person. And all of these identities, I think, particularly the first, I don't know how many I listed, maybe five. (laughs) So... Everyone except the last one, right? Because I am an able-bodied person, and so there is a level of privilege. There are things I I don't see and I won't notice in our society because of that privilege. But for the other four, those are, like, I am part of intersecting marginalized or minoritized communities, if we want to talk about it that way. I don't think of it that way. I just think of me being me and that who I am now is because I've had the space to think about explore and flourish, right? And figure out who Kelly really is. And who Kelly really is, it seems like, is a person (laughs) 
that does not adhere to a lot of the expectations around her. And I've tried in different points in my life to adhere to those expectations around me and it hurt too much. Right. And it made me depressed. It just took me in some really dark places. And so when I think about this kind of confluence of my own identities, it's not my sitting around saying, oh, I'm gay. I'm so gay. I'm a special <laughs> member of a special group. And I'm, what it is, is like, oh, I see what it means to be positioned as an outsider in society where you are doing nothing else but just being yourself. So what would be kind of typed as an abnormality in the dominant group's perspectives uh, across those identities, what would be seen or as abnormalities to me is completely normal. Nothing interesting about me at all. Like, sure, I'm with a woman, nothing interesting about that. Nothing to see here, right? But for dominant society, it's like, oh, you're a lesbian. So keeping that in mind, and just my experience with these more marginalized identities has actually really taught me that, again, moving back to the lie that is this dominant society, yeah. that, that lie limits you, but love enjoys and encourages you to be the fullness of who you are. Love will always ever encourage you to be exactly who it is that you know you are. If that's not what love is doing, then the shit's not love, basically. So when it comes to these different ways that identity can show up, particularly if like within a group, like if we're talking about black folks, the different identities that can crop up within blackness, if we are loving each other truly and fully, then we are loving each other across identities, through identities, because of identity. Like we're still loving each other through that. And that forcing conformity is not love. Forcing anyone to do anything is not love. And so that love will encourage and enhance variety. It will encourage and enhance diversity. We can see from the planet. The planet tells us that diversity is what exactly we live, right. Exactly. So if nature is giving us her example. Like we see examples every day, right? And so trees don't look alike. We do not take this. <laughs> look like the other one and therefore it must be cut down right and when we do say that that's when we know that we've gotten to our problematic parts of our yes that is the abnormality so conforming forcing conformity is the opposite of what is true what is right it's the opposite of love that forcing of conformity because i think that what it also leads me to and reminds me of is that there is no such thing as normalcy that Mm -hmm. also is a lie there's no such thing There's no such thing. There are so many opportunities for us to continue to understand self-directed education and all of the ways that it is connected to deeper work personally, communally, worldwide, really. Thank you for listening. I know this served you and it certainly served me. We're going to keep that going. Join me again next week. Peace.